0: Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This shows a deep dive into strategies, founding stories, and more behind Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Ted Spare. Ted is the co-founder of Neat, NEAT is a unified inbox for work notifications, currently focused on GitHub and Linear for software engineers. In this episode, we discuss Ted's first dip into entrepreneurship at university, building tools for developers, and his framework to interview customers. Please enjoy my conversation with Ted Spear. Hey Ted. I think the best place to start would be your upbringing, your experience at McGill, early work experience with CGI, and what that did to influence your decision, or maybe even possibly create the idea that became new. So are there any kind of key things from your background, whether school or work that have really led you to where you are today?
1: Yeah. So thank you for having me on, Evan, and looking forward to this. I would say my upbringing was fairly straightforward. I was born in a small town in Ontario and Mm -hmm. then spent my formative years in in Toronto. Went to public schools and then had a real interest in kind of machines and airplanes. I applied to McGill for engineering. And I I ended up starting in civil engineering, switched to mechanical later on. But I would say as soon as I got into engineering, I took a sci class and this whole world of code opened up to me. I realized that tools that bring people joy or solve problems can be built with some ease. And that started a whole new can of worms. So so, yeah, I spent my summers at McGill working in software and that's what got me here today.
0: And what was it about, you went from civil to mechanical to you did a comp sci class and that really piqued your interest. What was it about that kind of comp sci space that really piqued the interest and even developed a shift in where you wanted to go? Was it that kind of ease of creation versus that real world mechanical, like what was the main driver there?
1: Yeah, there was really one moment during the final exam, the professor came up to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Ted, your code is a real pleasure to read. And this was just some external validation, but it really stuck with me. And I thought, wow, if I can do this working with other people, I can build a team around it and meet interesting people. So that was a whole aspect of it. And then I think at a lower level, I just find... The constant problem solving involved in code is really rewarding. There's a really high frequency reward cycle and that keeps me engaged. I think I have a short attention span, I get bored easily and that just piqued my interest right away.
0: And now I noticed that you, maybe it was your first venture into like entrepreneurship, but can you expand a bit on the sweater guys? What was that all about? And how did that experience help shape you starting NEAT?
1: Yeah, sure, there's a bit of a story here. I was living in a residence up on the mountain in Montreal for first year, the first year of my undergrad, and there was an unused dark room for photography. It hadn't been used for three years. And one of my colleagues who is now an entrepreneur, I really look up to Dexter Story. He came to me one night over a beer and pitched this idea of of printing sweaters for a residence council. I wasn't super interested, to be honest, so him and another friend, Dom DeFelice, they did the printing They invested in a machine, printed something like 30 sweaters, made a bunch of money. And I saw that they were able to make something out of this and it piqued my interest suddenly. So I guess back to the darkroom, we convinced the uh, residence porter to give us the keys to this darkroom. We opened it up and it smelled so bad, man. It had all photo developing chemicals in it, buckets of this stuff. So with the porter's permission, we, we took it out, disposed of it, started cleaning the room, opened the windows, brought some light into it and set up shop. Again, with the porter's permission. Don't want to get in trouble from McGill here, but all above board. So invested in this one machine, it was like a craft uh, vinyl cutting machine. And we were able to use a computer to cut out designs and then peel them off, print them onto a sweater. Remarkably easy. And the motivation came from just seeing how much of a grind it is for any group to get swag. I think the problem has been solved a bit today, but at the time it was just so much back and forth, getting the right file types, getting samples, going through... Web 1.0 UIs, so we saw real room for improvement, and that was the genesis. We ended up leasing an office and then expanded, investing in new machines. Other residences heard about it and saw the quality of the sweaters, saw how much cheaper it was, and suddenly they got interested. So I think in hindsight, before even knowing the term product market fit, we had this instant product market fit from day one, which was really lucky. And so we were able to expand that way until we were doing like tens of thousands in ARR and it went much further. It went on for years, actually. Happy to talk about that.
0: That, That's super interesting. And I think possibly quite different from what NEED is focusing on more in that software coding development space, but what were some key learnings of creating an ultimately very successful business for people in university age or, or any age for that matter? What were some key highlights that you picked up in that space and have been able to carry or even improve on as you've moved on with Neat? Yeah, I
1: think you frame it really well. Like I never expected to be printing sweaters. It was not a passion, but it was a great kind of student business. And I think the first lesson was from doing constant customer support. So I know these programs like YC tells young founders to always be talking to users. And we almost took that for granted. We had to be writing invoices and going back and forth with customers. And so we, we learned how to support people and keep them in the loop, make sure no one gets dropped. And that ingrained into me this idea that like the user comes first and really at the end of the day, we're trying to solve their needs. And so if they tell us something, even if it doesn't fit with our intuition, it, that customer feedback is king, is key.
0: I think that's a key point and I hear that from a lot of these conversations. I guess to switch gears a little bit with that kind of customer feedback. How did Neat come about? Was it a firsthand problem that you were seeing or maybe amongst close friends that were coding? How did you really uncover that issue and ultimately lead to building out the product that fits that?
1: It really it was a problem that colleagues and I were seeing. So another colleague who's now my co-founder, Saram Malik, He came to me during the engineering pub and he he told me, Ted, I'm working at Pratt & Whitney doing data analytics for Jet Engines. And it's this huge engineering organization with really well-documented data and processes. But as a newcomer, there's such a high barrier to entry. It's so hard to break into this organization. And I said, oh, I figured the same when I was working at CGI in software consulting. Completely different industry, same problem. That was the first kind of clue. And so we looked at this big problem and... We thought, how do we solve it? The solution really wasn't obvious. And at first we thought that it was a like a file hierarchy issue. So we built this first product um, that was a file manager. It completely flopped, to be honest. It, it had no stickiness, like before we even knew the concept of user retention. But that was the first attempt. And, and that's kind of where we came to the problem.
0: So with that file management experience and it being a flop how did you take that pivot was it was that a challenging time to kind of reflect and go hey our first assumption potentially was not correct and now we need to move on to something else how did you really balance that and ultimately steer yourself into a much better direction
1: yeah absolutely so i guess admitting to ourselves that we had zero long-term users was the first step and i think more than we would like to, a lot of products are in this state. I'd like to shine some light on that. I don't think it's a real problem. I think it's just a step in the learning process, but it was really hard to accept that just to say to ourselves that it was not solving a problem. And this was kind of a new UI for Google drive. That was the idea that was easier to navigate a fast, low latency, full of keyboard shortcuts, but we didn't quite solve a problem. So from there we thought, what is a more high frequency problem within this domain that we could solve and. We started doing mock-ups we went back to the drawing board we thought what would google drive be if it were made in 2022 or 2020 at the time completely ground up product built with like modern ui standards superhuman or linear for google drive that was the idea so we made mock we shared these with users from the previous product testers rather and we asked them what is the most interesting part about this what is the least interesting part and people said oh i really like this could you zoom in on it so one aspect of it was this kind of activity feed that would show a user, what are your teammates working on? What important things have changed? And this is common in a lot of products, but we took that feedback, we zoomed in on it, made new feed, new mockups. And then users started to say, okay, this, this is promising. This is starting to be a real product. And we clung onto that signal. We made higher five mockups, um, users liked them. And so we thought, what is the first platform we could build this for? We're not gonna solve all the tools at once where do we start uh, and so we just asked ourselves like do we use and the number one was github so we thought what if we could tell ourselves as a team when something important has changed in github and when an individual needs to act on it and that was the idea for the current iteration
0: so with github that's obviously been tremendous change and improvement to the industry and their acquisition by microsoft did you do you think github and like the solution that Neat was fixing was that a new problem that evolved from github or was that something that has always historically been there but maybe amplified i guess i want to get a good sense of was it a fundamental shift in that kind of coding landscape that opened up a problem that neat could fix or was this something that was always there that just no one has really jumped on
1: yeah, you bring up a good point. Even Git itself is not that old. I think it's 15 years old or so, fun out of the Linux project. So an- another huge contribution to the open source world that, that came from Linus Torvalds. And then GitHub itself is a, like a great wrapper for, for Git, I want to say. So it solves a ton of problems. We use it all the time, don't get me wrong. And the specific sub problem that we aim to solve absolutely is a new problem. And it just arises from all of us, all knowledge workers using so many tools on a day-to-day basis. The notifications pings start to get overwhelming, Uh, whether those are Slack integrations or emails from our tools or that bell icon at the top. I find, and a lot of our users find, that it's just hard to gain any value from those.
0: So unifying like the inbox of notifications to speed up the flow there was that kind of ticket. You noticed that a good uptick from a, a product market fit. Did you, how did you go about getting the initial first users? Was that, you know, reaching out to other colleagues or friends in the space and getting them to try it out? How did you initially get that first batch of users and then iterate and make the product what it is today?
1: How did we get our first users? Our very few first users were ourselves and the mailing list from the previous attempt at a product and the next users, Evan, I can't remember where these people came from to be honest, um, but right away we started investing in SEO. And today this is our uh, one of our biggest channels and it's kind of a base load channel. So we started writing thought pieces and blog posts for underserved search terms in our industry. And today these reach people who are experiencing the problem we're aiming to solve them. But I guess that missing link in the middle, some of them came from our personal networks. Some of them happened on our landing page online. And I guess a big source was a Product Hunt launch. So we've done a few of these. I think Product Hunt is a great platform for makers and it led to a lot of early traction in, in our target market.
0: And that sounds very interesting and also I, Product Hunt has definitely been talking to other founders has definitely been advantageous to their growth. I guess it'd be interesting to discuss with Neat. So it's built in the browser. That's correct? Neat is a
1: web app and then it's served on the desktop.
0: And what what did you, why did you choose that angle? Why do you, did you think like a web app and served on the desktop is the best? Is that deep integration in terms of notifications really important for users to have? It's really that
1: often you sign up for a new platform. They ask you, In Chrome, can we send you notifications and do you ever click allow to those?
0: Sometimes it can depend. Sometimes. Okay.
1: Yeah. We find that those have like pretty low signup rates. And so by being on the desktop, we can give users finer grained notifications and ensure that they get the value from the product, which requires getting those banners. Another consideration is that it gives us a global shortcut. So we have a lot of power users, people who like to use keyboard shortcuts for everything. these are people who spend a lot of time on the keyboard, so they They start to optimize their day to day actions. And inspired by platforms like Superhuman and Linear, even Gmail shortcuts are really good, I find. We have a way to pop up the app from anywhere that the user is. That way they stay in their flow. Maybe they're reviewing code, maybe they're writing code. They can just glance at Neat and get right back
0: into it. And you sent across a really interesting project. So, GitHub Wrapped. Was that a project that your team at Neat took on? Was it a side thing you were looking at? How did that project come about? And it seemed to have tremendous success there. So what were some key learnings from there?
1: Yeah. GitHub wrapped was a project I'm really proud of. And we also launched on product Hunt. even before we jump into this, Evan, I'd be curious to hear you talk to, to so many young founders outside of product Hunt. Are there any platforms that you see, or I guess methods that you see for acquiring those first say 50 users that, that you think are unique?
0: It's a great question. I think like product hunt has definitely come up a lot from the conversations I've had so far. I think with the initial product market fit, we've had some other kind of people in your space, like with fluent and sleek, which are both kind of consumer space. And I think the main thing there is just narrowing the focus of what you're going after. And I think it's easier to find where those people live. So in terms of Fluent, which that episode will come out soon, but with Fluent, there was really a big focus on Reddit communities. So people talking about translation or immersion Mm -hmm. and where, where do they live? And I think the pattern I've seen from founders really being, where you want to call that successful or finding that product market fit is really narrowing that scope. So with like Fluent, for example, if you look at it from a high level, it's like, oh, people want to learn a new language. But what they're really narrowed it down to is how do we create an immersion experience for people that already have some sort of a base of language, and we'd focus on the first like thousand words of any given language because that's what people would use on a day to day basis. Mm-hmm. So I think that can really be helpful because you've actually narrowed the focus. From for, for instance, with need is that focus. Uh, all developers and you've already narrowed it down to developers using GitHub, but can you even narrow that focus even tighter? So that's what I've seen as a pattern amongst different people is just narrowing that focus to almost, it almost seems too small.
1: Yeah. That's a really interesting view on Fluent. I'm a big fan of Fluent and and of their founders too. So I I see how it is like a remote work immersion experience. I'm excited for that episode, but Reddit is definitely a a good channel that, that we should explore more. I even heard an interesting take recently. So often when we Google things these days, maybe you find this, the results are just cannibalized by SEO blog posts. And to really find the right answer, you, like you add Reddit to that search. I thought that was kind of stick. So that's a hack that I think a lot of us use. Like you want to find the, The, what people are talking about? You add Reddit. yeah.
0: Yeah. Adding Reddit, Discord channels are super interesting. But like search and discovery on on TikTok is also really interesting, right? Like you're looking at TikTok, Instagram, all these social media platforms. You know, there's lots of articles out there about next search is going to be social media. Mm -hmm. Like Google's obviously a powerhouse and this will take lots and lots of time. But as younger people are spending more time on these social media platforms with TikTok for is one of the, the bigger ones there. They have a really good search functionality. But people will search up Product reviews, or I have this problem, or key terms that you would historically look at Google mm-hmm. for, people are searching those on TikTok and uncovering stuff. So, Fluent, a bunch of other startups that I'll have had on last season and future, se- and for this season, that's a growth avenue as well.
1: That's a really interesting shift. I think you and I are just on the cusp of Gen Z, but not quite there to not be using Google to search things. So that yeah, that's interesting to, to pay attention to.
0: Yeah, I'm at that, I'm 29 right now, so I'm like on a fine line of uh, that kind of Gen Z, slightly younger, but uh, yeah, I, I see my sister, she's about 25, 24, she lives in Montreal, okay. but everything's on TikTok. All the "Sir, how do I cook this? How do I do this? It's becoming that kind of new Google there.
1: It's a, a really different way of browsing too. Instead of feeding someone's life story before getting a recipe for some lentil soup, you get straight to the source and it's like higher information density. I like TikTok.
0: Yes, exactly. But yeah, I don't mean to um, derail your conversation. Yeah, no, I love this. I love kind of like digging into stuff. And with GitHub Wrap, what was, how did you come up with that project? And like, what were the initial, what was it, were you working on Neat and you saw this kind of side thing that you could build out? Was it just purely like an inspirational project that you wanted to kind of go after? How did you take a look at that? It was really a bit of
1: both. So to your listeners, if you use if you use Spotify for music, at the end of the year, you get Spotify. And we see people really enjoy this. It's top artist, how much time you spent listening, all these stats. And I know I always enjoy like sharing mine at the end of the year, or just deking it out with friends. Who's a bigger fan of ASAP a- Rocky, I don't know. But we had the same idea for developers. And the motivation, it was a bit of a marketing project. It was a bit of a just fun side project. Um, we were looking for, some way to to find like viral growth towards the end of the year. So we started this right before the holiday break, early December, we gave ourselves two weeks to build a viral project, we came to this idea. And I guess we built it in those two weeks, launched it, and it reached like 9,000 signups within another two weeks or so. And it's still up there, wrapped.run, but it's not really relevant anymore. The idea was exactly that, if developers could get a wrap up of their past year, of their 2021, visualized nicely and very shareable, what would that look like? So we t- the questions of what are your top languages, code languages, which repos do you commit to? Which projects do you commit to? Who are your recent followers and following? These were basically the pub- public data that we could find, but then we tried to visualize them in a really nice shareable way that people could be proud of. So that was the idea, and the UI was really just an experience. Like you log in, it shows a few fancy messages. It says like doing some math, crunching the numbers, this kind of thing. And then it shows you a few slides of your personal stats. And I guess that point was taken from this insight that a lot of developers share their code abilities in their personal GitHub pages, like in a README file. A lot of users will have uh, like their code score, which is uh, on the A, B, C scale, and it just represents how much they commit. Um, and there are also stats about like how many pull requests does someone open, how many issues do they close. So we thought. Clearly, this is something that developers are proud to share if they focus on it. Uh, why not let them share that? And then the last piece was just that it was really engineered to go viral, and it did. So at the end, like we made it as easy as possible to either copy an image of the stats or share it directly to Twitter or download it. And this was inspired by a project from Raycast called dots Ray. uh, where you can kind of share a code block in a really a really pretty UI format. So that was the some of the UI inspiration. And then yeah, we launched it on Product Hunt, back to that channel. And it really blew up on Twitter. I guess it it was made to, but um, that surprised us. And then it was interesting to watch during those first 24 hours, we would see as it passed through time zones, it would blow up in different regions. So it was like, it was huge in Vietnam. And we saw at one point, like a third of our signups were in Vietnam alone. That really surprised us. And we would see sometimes an influencer would share it on Twitter. There would be a huge spike in traffic. And what else? We made it an open source project and we got contributions from 11 open source developers, which is really cool. Got to collaborate with a designer from Twilio as well. And so she had really good design input. And yeah, it's still up there. It's still open source. Happy to share a link after the podcast.
0: Yeah, I'd love to check that out. And I think it's, that's an interesting topic there on like virality. And it's almost that kind of that wave right of it's that perfect fit and like it takes off so i guess ultimately uh the focus is on neat and github wrapped is still around but not a main focus but what were some, some takeaways there that you've implemented into neat of creating a viral product something easy to share something that delights users were those some key takeaways and i guess like what has been the major thing that you've taken away from that
1: that's a good point. And it seems like there are two portions. There's the user delight and there's the virality. I think often these are at odds, which is too bad. But I want to say that Raft was more driven by need than vice versa. Like we had spent so much time on this small desktop app. At the end of the year, we kind of wanted to let loose and put some code out into the open and just share for free what we had learned. So that was a motivation. But as for user delight, I would say we focused a lot on onboarding. Onboarding is the experience of like signing into a product, setting up your settings, this kind of thing. And when you get the product tour and there are dialogues, like try going here, go take the product tour. Do you go through them? Do you go through each one? Uh,
0: that's a great question. I would say if it's pretty intuitive, I'll kind of skip it, but maybe if it's a kind of a new technical platform, like obviously recor- recording on Riverside. Yeah. I actually did go through the tour cause it was a brand new kind of interface and experience for me.
1: Okay. Same here, Like a Lego set. If it's simple enough, you just throw out the instructions. I like that. But yeah, we had the same insight, especially with a desktop app. There are so many steps just to download it and install it. And these are just relics of the way that, that OS handles app installs that aren't from the app store. So we know that we're going to have those steps. We want to have as few steps as possible to get the user to this like wow moment as soon as possible. We don't want them to be giving us a bunch of info before we've given them anything. Um, It would be like walking into a grocery store and they make you like clean the fruit and sweep the floor before you can walk through the produce section. We want to just have a free basket of apples and bananas right at the front door, something like that. So I think wrapped gave us some insights into onboarding, making the off flow have as few clicks as possible. And that also it drives retention. That's something we see, but otherwise in terms of virality, we haven't really focused on this in neat yet. We want to nail the product experience for the individual before we push it to go viral. And organic growth is still one of our biggest channels, probably our biggest channel of new users, but we haven't pushed it in any way. So we we wanna make sure that we're not like putting out ads if we are building a brand that people don't like. So um, as for virality, we're we're definitely paying attention to it. And we have ideas like sent from my iPhone footer in emails. If there's a feature in Neat where you can uh, nudge a pull request reviewer who hasn't reviewed in a long time. And to that, we add like a a sent from Neat footer. So there there are viral features like this that we're just starting to get into, but want to make sure that we get it right.
0: And I think that's very interesting with kind of the the viral features even being something as simple as sent from this platform. You, you, You made an interesting point there with, and I'd like to dig a bit deeper into it. So with that loading from your browser, downloading the platform, how do you see like a web-based app? Like obviously once someone has downloaded, retention is likely higher than maybe something that's browser-based because someone's using it on a daily basis, integrated into their kind of toolbar. Mm -hmm. But how do you think about that? Is there a drop-off point for someone's like, I don't want to download something new. What is this new thing? How do you really get people over that hump? And is is that where you see people drop off the most? Is that a kind of initial, oh, I have to download this thing?
1: Yeah. So uh, for anyone listening, if this is a foreign language, retention is just how many users stay on the product for how long. And for example, a mobile product often looks at like D60 retention, which is the question, what percentage of users are still using the app after 60 days? That's exactly it. And we see that in a sticky product, this is a kind of a one over X curve. So like it drops off very steeply. And then if things are going well, it flattens off at some uh, some static value. And then it stays at that value, hopefully. Um, and then really good retention, it even, it's called a smile curve. It increases over time because some users have signed in, they were curious, they logged off, but then they started to have an itch to get back into it. So that's really the dream. But something we see that's interesting just from research is that the biggest predictor in in say D60 retention, and this is from mobile app papers, uh, the biggest predictor of D60 is like week one or day one retention. So there's that huge drop off initially, and then it flattens off. And if that initial drop off is really bad, then the, the final retention is going to be pretty low. So that's the, I guess that's like the mathematical backing to focus on week one or day one retention, which is really awesome.
0: With that retention over time, since neat is focused on kind of notification, obviously people are getting notified multiple times a day. Do you see that as an advantage for retention over time? Because it is a usable platform on a daily basis and people are interacting with it over versus a platform that someone may- maybe only needs to touch once a week, once every two, two weeks.
1: Yeah, you're spot on by showing the user notifications. It kind of gives us a leg up in retention, but there's a bit more to it. If a user is completely overwhelmed with notifications, they'll log out. If a user gets zero notifications, they'll log out. And those are users for whom it's really not a solution. If like we don't want to be overwhelming someone, we don't want to be taking up space on someone's computer so they should log out. It makes sense. And striking that balance is the hard part. That's like the, the challenge in this product, the hard part. You should name a podcast after that. but
0: That's a great name. I,
1: I totally agree. But I would say that uh, retention, we definitely have a leg up. But then the challenge is like making sure that people are staying for the right reason, if that makes sense.
0: I guess, how do you view notifications? I'm personally someone who has turned off notifications on every single app except text messages. And even then, I find I can feel overwhelmed. And that's probably just each individual is slightly different. <laughs> But how do you strike that fine balance of over notification and just delivering enough notifications that someone is like, hey, this product is useful. It's helping me out. Do you filter things out? Do you mute certain things? Do people have a bunch of settings they can play with because each person's slightly different? How do you look at that?
1: Yeah. So the last point is key. Every user is different. We have some open source developers who oversee like 10 open source repos that are flooded with issues, flooded with pull requests. And then we have some searchers who are just uh, starting their first repo. Maybe they don't actually work in software development, but they're using GitHub day to day and they want to know when like, one collaborator has opened a pull request and so to serve both of those users, it's exactly as you say, it's a, a combination of filtering and like default opinions in the product. I'll get a bit into that, but just to clarify, like the current iteration of neat, it's a desktop app and it's a, an inbox, a feed of GitHub notifications with some default filtering and then lots of custom filtering. So it's those two pieces. For example, we know that if a closed pull request gets a comment from a bot, it's probably not useful. Um, Like bots, especially give us a lot of noise. And then other things we know that if someone's workflow, which is like a a cloud process has failed, they probably want to know urgently because that means that like a unit test failed or the actual build is bro. That's quite urgent. So there are all of these insights, as soon as one user brings these up, we're able to add the rule to the app and it benefits all the users, which is great. But beyond that, as you say, it's different. So we have filters to let people mute certain repos or certain users. Maybe they want to mute a certain bot. That's a common use case. And we're actually overhauling this feature quite soon. So there, there are going to be some interesting additions, filtering or even like highlighting what's really important.
0: And with these changes that are coming, how do you kind of gain this feedback right now? Like we talked earlier about incommodators you know, always asking their startups to always be interviewing customers. How do you really go about figuring out, hey, where do we go next with this product? Like we have a solid foundation, we're providing a lot of value there. How do you cut through the noise and figure out, like, what are the next product features that we actually need to build based off what our users are looking for?
1: Yeah, we think about this a lot too. And basically we've also optimized the flow to let the user share anonymous feedback in the app. And just like onboarding, if you have too many clicks, some people are going to give up. That's probably like a principle of UX. It probably has a name, I don't know, but it's also intuitive, I think. Like the more clicks you have, the more likely I am to give up or go to someone else's product. So often I find to, to share feedback, you have to go through pages and fill out a whole form. That's not really fun. So we have in like few clicks as possible, a user can just submit some feedback and it comes straight into our, my, like my team Slack channel. And this idea it was mostly taken from Raycast. So they have the same thing like in-app feedback with the option to share an email. So same for us, like it's anonymous by default, but if someone wants us to follow up, they can add their email. So all the time we get Slack notifications and then my team has just like a, a rotating schedule. Whoever reacts to that Slack message uh, it's their responsibility to respond to the user, and we try to get that with 15 minutes. I think I, I often drop the ball of my team, but aiming for that 15 minutes, and then that often starts like a real conversation with the user, which is cool.
0: And once you're on that conversation with the user, have you developed, or you and your team developed any ends or that focus of the call? Are you really asking a ton of questions, or is it more, hey? can you walk through the product for me share the screen and I can see how you're using it how have you found the best way so far to really not so much the truth but like what that user actually wants versus maybe what they're just kind of saying
1: yeah it really varies but there's a good framework for this that comes from the book the mom test and so I'm not sure if other guests have brought this up, but it's kind of the go-to book for founders to to frame questions in a way that are not leading, so that the user is more likely to share their truth, as you say. Like we don't want to jump to conclusions, we don't want to propose features before we actually understand the need. And so at first, like we followed that really strictly, but it varies so much in user support. Some people will share their operating system and a full like set of logs. Others will share screenshots. Others will just share like a few cryptic words that we're trying to understand. And from those, as you say, like a lot of them, they propose a feature, but there's a simpler solution to it. Or there's a solution that addresses like multiple users' needs. We keep tickets for those. But I think a big goal of it is just to make sure that the user feels heard or and is heard. Like the whole point of building the product is that it's a reflection of the user need. And it's pretty rare that what someone asks for is way out of scope. And if they do, we'll tell them but usually like we can add an upvote to a ticket or make a new ticket to eventually build a feature or fix a bug for that user.
0: I really like that focus and I've not heard about the the mom project and we'll definitely be checking that out. Neat and kind of other products, Figma, even Slack early days, were part of this kind of viral growth of a single person could start using this at a, a midsize or a large organization. And I know there's teams at soft Alibaba that are using neat. How do you really think about that? So you're that's growth in terms of just even acquiring the first few users. But then how are you looking to, you know, maybe some individual at Shopify signs up for neat. How are you treating that individual and how are you growing that product then within their team? And then hopefully within Shopify as an organization.
1: Evan, please stick with podcasting. These are like the best questions. Yeah. How do we make sure that a user gets value from the product, even if they're the only one in their team using it? That's something we think about a lot. And that's the stage we're at right now, like a single player product. So we make sure that even if a user's team is not using need, they have a tool that can pull their repository and get the right information, add value for that individual. If they tell their teammates about it, great. We're thrilled. And hopefully if they're recommending it, it'll also add value for their teammates. As you say, like we do want to grow the product. And so we start to think about viral features. How do we tell those teammates about need automatically? A really good example of this. There's a tool that's made by founders around the same stage as us called Superpowered, and this is a calendar app. So it gives like notifications for your upcoming event. And they they have a lot more features in the, the pipeline, I know. But I joined a Slack recently and like a new organization Slack. And right away, I got a message from Superpowered that said, Hey, your team is using Superpowered, please download it. And I got an email saying the same thing. So there are all these ways to make sure that entire teams learn about a product. I that it adds value for all of them. But right now we really just focus on that individual, try to delight them so that they do share it with their team, or if we're in a conversation with a user, we'll sometimes we'll ask them to mention it to their team. A really like high leverage source is when an influential user tweets about Neat. So there's a, like a developer streamer named Theo.gg and he tweeted like after 10 minutes of use, I can guarantee Neat has changed my life. Something like this. The highest words of praise that, that someone can give. So that led to a, a pretty big spike in growth. And so there are like higher leverage referrals than other, that's something we think about
0: With these kind of leaders or influencers in that kind of developer space, do you ever look to seek out those individuals, build relationships with them? Are they almost a form of, you're looking at e-commerce, building relationships with influencers on Instagram and TikTok, that kind of similar power there? How do you look at building those relationships or do you even think that's a kind of viable channel for growth?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if it's viable, but I know there are tools like... Buffer or I, yeah, I guess there are tools to to market through influencers like at least yeah in e-commerce as you mentioned. Buffer is not the one I'm forgetting the name, but this is something we think about reaching out to developer influencers. I think it's an emerging space. We see that they don't have the millions and millions of followers that people do in other spaces, but it's an interesting space to watch definitely. And if it's happening organically already, if we were to push a bit, I do wonder what would happen. But it's not something we've
0: done yet. And I guess that feeds nicely into a product for developers. Like obviously, as we spoke about earlier in the conversation with sweater guys or conversation that I'm having with a lot of different organizations. Do you think there's a different focus when you're building something in the dev tech developer space Are developers looking really refined product? Something that really helps them out. Do you feel like the space does have some nuances or is it quite similar to other spaces when building products?
1: Evan, I think developers are the easiest user to build for and simultaneously the hardest. Easy because it, these are people building products day to day. And so they look at a bug and often they have a remarkably accurate model of what's going wrong and give us that bug report in detail. And they'll say, like, hey, I think you need to fix poll. You need to fix this model. And that makes the support much easier. And then it's hard because developers are. I guess developer tooling is such a crowded space. There are so many good options that a tool really has to be good at like getting out of the way and not being too opinionated to appeal to a developer. I can't really speak for all developers here, but I know that if I guess for context, like I, I probably spend three, two, three hours of my day coding, four hours more. And if I see a product advertised to me right away, like I, I cross it off in my mind. Whereas if I see someone recommend a product to me, I'm probably going to download it, try it out. And I don't know if that if that represents people at all, but if that's the case, we have to be very careful about uh, accessing people in the right way, not pushing solutions on them. And then once the product is in their hands, getting out of their way, adding value without marketing too much. I think that's a, a careful line to tread.
0: I like that focus of getting out of the way. If you use a lot of products, Nowadays, I would even argue with Slack or anything. It feels like they're trying to get in your way, mm-hmm. over notify you, maybe create, there's people maybe in the organization that don't know how to use that tool effectively versus people that know how to use it super well. So how do you look at that balance too Of you talked to earlier notification balance, but how do you look about that kind of balance on the scale of getting out of someone's way, being effective enough that it provides value, but not so overwhelming that it's like inhibiting someone's day-to-day flow?
1: Yeah, I actually wanted to mention this earlier. We intentionally don't optimize how much time a user spends in the app. So sometimes I'll be talking to a VC and they'll ask, what kind of usage do you see? And I'll clarify that don't want users to spend time in the app, because if they do, they're not being pointed to the right place. So the dream is that this magical tool alerts you when an app has changed only in a way that matters to you. So you open it, you're taken to the right resource, you can act on it, your day goes on. But if you're spending time like searching through need and scrolling, then it's probably not adding value. So we measure retention because we assume that if someone's spending too much time in need, they're wasting their time, they're gonna log out. But if they're staying for a long time, for two months, then they probably are getting value out of it. That usage metric, I know it's popular for like mobile apps. If there's a game, for example, you want someone to, to play as much Angry Birds as possible, but we, we definitely don't optimize for that. So that's what I mean by getting out of a user's way uh, we want them to be coding. We want them to be building products and ultimately like shipping their own features to users and to do that, we have to be getting them to the right place as well as we can.
0: So what would be a better metric that your team focuses on? Is it you know, obviously feedback from users, it's a more data point, what data points are more important to you versus usage?
1: Data points are interesting. We use amplitude to track events in the app. These are anonymized and like we, we graph some, we compare some. We're looking for which features do, you, do users actually use, which do they not use? And if they do use a feature a lot, is it just because it's front and center in the app or is it because they get value out of it? So these are questions we try to answer. I know like I'm obsessed with metric. I check amplitude all the time and I make new queries all the time. But then my co-founders are much more focused on, on the conversations with users, so there's a, a balance to be struck there, but like in my obsession with metric, I'm looking for, I'm looking for leading indicators of product market fit, that's where we want to be as a company. And there's this interesting article by the founder of superhuman about indicators of product market fit. And there are lots of lagging indicators he claims. So he says, like high retention is probably a lagging indicator. It happens after you have product market fit or user evangelism or paying users. These all come after product market fit. Whereas one that comes before is, and this comes from experimentation. It's the question of how many users would be very disappointed to lose the product today. So this is a question that, that superhuman asked users early. on. If you could not have superhuman ever again, how disappointed would you be? And they were trying to get to this magical 40% mark A very disappointed. So that's something that we ask users and, and then compare as a, like a signal towards PMF, but otherwise in terms of product metrics, as I said, like what's the relative frequency of features, how many notifications are top users getting and if at what point is it overwhelming? So yeah, those are a few key metrics.
0: I love that. And that's super insightful with the focus on, Getting to that 40% mark of people that would be severely disappointed if they lost that product. So that's super interesting. Move into the quick fire round right now. I added this for this season with three questions just due to some feedback from the first season. So first question would be, what is the best book you have read or even one that's maybe sitting on your bookshelf and you're looking to crack into?
1: This book called Growth by Vaclav Smil. It's not about personal growth. It's not self-help. It's about how systems grow. So the author, who's a University of Manitoba professor, goes from uh, bacteria to trees, to civilizations, to the weight of automobiles. And I think the biggest takeaway is that in nature, exponential growth doesn't exist. Like anything that seems to be exponential is just entering an S-curve. And so I pay attention to that a lot. And we see it in like the populations of ant colonies or the size of a tree or say, I don't know, the size of a, a cell phone, this kind of thing. They all follow S-curves. Yeah, good book I've read.
0: I'm about halfway through that okay. one, so I can also, a uh, plus one on that. It's a fantastic book, and uh, maybe I can get him on the podcast because he is Canadian. But I didn't spoil Second anything. Question. It's definitely a, more no. of a textbook
1: <laughs> than a narrative, but hope I didn't spoil it.
0: It is a heavy read, but uh, I think it's good to balance those in with other reads because it's just, it's super technical. It's super interesting. He's done a lot of research. Yeah, uh, it's a fantastic. I book. know he's also
1: influenced Bill Gates in his book, like How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, thinking about say how much like fossil fuels can grow, how much like solar solar power can grow. I think solar power is an interesting one to watch because it's just entering that S curve, and it's already at like five percent of energy production worldwide. So it gives an interesting framework. I would agree.
0: Question number two, what are you most excited about this year, whether it's neat work-related or just on a personal side?
1: Personally, I'm excited about building cool products with people I love. So these are just my, my co-founders and we love to build things. We have lots of side projects in, in the roadmap. What am I excited about? I'm excited about Web3. I went into the rabbit hole recently. I don't know if this is a divisive topic, but I'm completely rabbit holed and what am I excited about? I'm excited about climate tech. I see I have two older siblings and they're both like very negative about climate change. And then I talk to younger friends and they're super optimistic about climate tech and climate action. So I think that's something to be excited about. The future is bright.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that climate tech. I know there's a startup, a few startups here in Canada focus on that space. And I think the impact that they're looking to build is is super inspiring. Third question and last question. How do you deal with hard time? Being a founder, starting something new, finding that product market fit, balancing a team. These are all really challenging and hard things. How do you personally deal with them?
1: I deal with hard times by leaning on a support network realistically. My wonderful girlfriend, my family, my co-founders, my friends, these are people who keep me in check when I'm getting too into my head too stressed. So I think that's number one and it took me a long time to realize that during undergrad, but, um, how do I deal with hard times? Otherwise just try to build a, a stress tolerance is what I do.
0: I love that. And I uh, definitely another plus one on family, friends, girlfriends, they are a huge help. it's been a fantastic conversation. Great to learn more about neat. Great to learn more about yourself and so appreciate your time today. And uh, hopefully we could do it again in the future.
1: Yeah, Evan, thanks for your time. I love what you're doing. Best of luck.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Check out the podcast description for my social and website links to stay up to date with all future episodes.